All right, let's start. So welcome to the Jackson Lucas iOS webinar. Thank you all for being here. Thank you attendees. Thank you panelists. Thank you, Zoe Fonzo, for putting it all together in the back end there. Uh, Want to just start out with introductions. Lisa Flicker is uh, the managing partner on Luke Jackson Lucas. She runs our real estate practice. She's based in New York. Uh, she just got her haircut. Looks great. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> and then we have uh, Mark Duval. Mark is with JLL. He's a managing director of Capital Markets. He's based in Morristown, New Jersey. He came over from HFF and he graduated from the same high school as me. That's right. Got about that. <laughs> How, what's the, uh, can you tell us about the iOS? Do you have a dedicated practice there at JLO or is it, is it like, I mean, I know like you're one of like the main guys who do this, but is there like, is it, is it, is it institutional enough to have a dedicated practice for iOS at JLO? It's coming. It's certainly coming. Um, yeah. is you know, the, the, the client base is asking for it, right? Specialists from a capital market standpoint. Um, we definitely have a, a leasing uh, focus on it um in in the respective regions but capital markets is information awesome and then we have derek fish derek is the svp of investments with real term uh he leads the acquisitions in the us for them and based in chicago how you doing derek can you just give us a kind of a brief overview of uh of what real terms doing in the ios space yeah absolutely so um like i said i'm based here in chicago we've got offices in new york baltimore and LA, along with that, Realterm is an $11 billion um, transportation real estate asset manager. Um, the vast majority of that AUM is, is here in the US and North America, but we have operations in, in Europe and Asia Pacific, really Australia as well. All of, our, all of our platform is focused on iOS that serves the transportation and logistics industry. So supply chain related um, transportation infrastructure like outdoor storage properties, like truck terminals, dredge yards, maintenance facilities, low coverage, transload, and final mile buildings. So we've been at it for near 30 years now. And, and um, you know, I think have been investing in those asset types since long before iOS or outdoor storage was a term of art. And, um, you know, we, we welcome all the, the folks that have come to the space and created a really robust transaction environment. So happy to be discussing it. Thanks, Derek. And then we have Alexander Olshansky. Alex uh, is with... Zenith iOS in New York City. Uh, we've shared breakfast before. It was a great breakfast. Alex, can you tell us about Zenith and what you guys are doing in the space? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, so Zenith is a vertically integrated um, iOS owner operator uh, based in New York, but uh, we own nationally, I think at last count, we're in 22 different states. Um, started a couple of years ago, um, and yeah, we're looking to, to continue to you know institutionalize the asset class and and hopefully end up with a, sort of a multi-billion-dollar portfolio here in the next couple of years. Awesome. And then, not last but definitely not least, Timothy McCahill. Timothy is the principal at Transport Properties in Chicago. Timmy, been in this space a, a, a long time. Can you tell us about uh, transport? Yeah, uh, thank you, Chris, for having me. Uh, again, yeah, Tim McHale, Transport Properties. Uh, we started as a formal company about five years ago, but I started in the space about 12 years ago, uh, you know, just doing, you know, luckily my first listing was a truck terminal. And, you know, I guess that'll bring me to the next question. But, 
you know, we grew a little bit differently than some of our competitors. We grew as a brokerage shop that converted to an investment real estate shop. So we're kind of, you know, do things a little bit differently than some of our competitors. We, we cold call our users. We, we do things in, in that manner versus the investment banking strategy. You know, we, we've in the last four years amassed over 400 million of iOS properties. We, we sold in December, 2021. We're actually currently out recapping, just select our new partner to go again and, to scale to hopefully be the size of uh, the Zenus in the real terms one day. Getting That's there. Great to know. So, go ahead, Lisa. So you know, it's so interesting to see how people like in iOS became so so institutionalized, but yet it's still obviously kind of boots on the ground. I'd love to hear about why everybody went into iOS, or was it just kind of you found yourself there? Uh, maybe I'll start with Alex. Sure. Yeah, for, for us and uh, compared to some of the other panelists, you know, Derek and Timothy, the characterized are probably a newer entrant. Um, when we first looked at the space, it actually was, a, was kind of simple uh, in the sense that we realized that this was a large asset class. Uh, you know, there's a range of sizes on it, but, you know, what's called a two to three hundred billion dollars sort of asset class in the U.S. And uh, we could tell that, you know, brokers weren't really focused on it. Uh, investors at the time, we could only identify maybe three or four dedicated iOS investors. Um, and also just as simple as it didn't even have a name yet at the time. I think there's some people throwing around ISF. Some people call outside storage on the West Coast. They call it yards. And anytime you see a multi-hundred billion dollar asset class that doesn't even have a name, I mean, <laughs> and people don't know how to price it, I, we for us, it was just sort of an aha moment and we jumped in with two feet. So that was about three years ago um, and have scaled pretty quickly since then. Have you noticed that the, that the talent is different? It's interesting because from where we sit, iOS used to be a very um, mom and pop, people who had boots in the back of their truck. And now I feel like, I, I'm sorry to go off script and ask you, but I'm just curious to see if you find that the folks that you're bringing on happen to be more institutional than in the past. For, for us, uh, definitely. Um, you know, our our team is a, is a pretty diverse area of background we, we brought on. People that did, you know, very institutional ground up multifamily uh, before to we brought on someone very recently to, to run portfolio management for us from one of the largest asset managers in the world. So, um, yes, it's it's actually been a surprising, like the talent pool in terms of how institutional it's getting, at least from where we sit. Definitely. Hey, hey, Lisa, I'll, I'll add to that. Just one thing <laughs> is. Um, it is definitely a younger class because uh, you need the energy and you need the motor to find and uncover information that's very fragmented. So um, what I thought was I was a young buck in the industry in this niche space. It feels like I'm one of the seniors, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, because of the fragmentation of the industry, it just feels like, hey, you got to get somebody that's out there boots on the ground daily. And um, all, all, th all three of the groups here that we have in front of us is uh, kudos to them. They have the young, hungry 
um, talent underneath them. Yeah. Well, and, and, what can we describe what iOS? Sorry, Tim. Before, like, what I what is iOS? Like, what constitutes it besides truck parking? Uh, what else is there? I mean, it's a very broad list. I mean, the way I look at iOS is it's it's low FAR, small building with a yard. So that could be trucking, that could be equipment rental, that could be, you know, school bus companies. I mean, honestly, in this space, I found, you know, there's more, there's large groups that you've never heard of every day. You know, one of our tenants is a, a $10 billion roofing supply company that six months ago I hadn't heard of. Um, you know, we we just sold our first harbor. Um, that so now we're dealing in aggregate. So the space itself is just so young and so untapped that honestly, probably outside of the realtors who've been in it for 30 plus years that probably know it probably better than most. I mean, me being in it north of 10 years, I still come across users that I didn't know existed. You'll find pallet companies that are five billion dollars in revenue. That again, it's just it the space itself in iOS, whatever you know, everybody wants to call it. We call it something different, I feel like every week, but in the sector, it, it, the the uses are just so broad. So I tend to stick with, you know, honestly, low FAR is how I describe it. Yeah, Tim's absolutely right. You know, there's there's a number of segments in it. You know, painting with a broad iOS brush is is really difficult, right? There's there's different nuances. Some folks are geographically focused, and that that means because they can only buy in six or seven markets nationally, do their capital, they're going to buy lower coverage product and, and get exposure to iOS that way. Others are focused on equipment rental or maintenance facility, whatever, whatever it may be. A lot of the things that Tim just described, you know, at real term, right. Ours is a, a, a strict transportation focus. So unless we can make the argument that our, our assets are going to be tied to the supply chain and that the users that are really moving freight and, and continuing to demand more efficiency out of those facilities due to the rise in e-commerce and now kind of the rush of onshoring and the movement of raw materials, then it's it's not an investment we're going to make, but but others very well may within iOS, and because of that, the the users that you get to know and become comfortable with and familiar with have different credit profiles, different sizes, and and you build relationships within those industries. So you know, to to Alex's point, extremely fragmented both on sort of the definitional side, the asset based side, but also on how folks choose to attack it and the sort of ecosystems within iOS you get comfortable with. Gotcha. Um, so why why did you get into it uh, there, Timothy? For um, all of us, some level of uh, of happenstance, right? You know, I I started my career at LaSalle Investment Management, so very large multi manager asset manager focused on all major food groups of real estate. And one of the one of the joint ventures I worked on as an analyst was a, a joint venture between Realterm and LaSalle. And you know, a lot of the things that other People have noted on this call. I, I noticed early in my career that the performance was outstanding, um, even in a very fragmented space where you know even even LaSalle at a you know huge you know fifty forty fifty billion dollar global asset manager couldn't couldn't find good financing for this type of asset, truck terminals and the like, still performing really well among the the best investments that that firm had had ever done. Depending on the vintage, the team was exceptional and and sort of had a really coherent strategy around how to engage with the space before it was mainstream. So. Um, was happy to join in, in 2016 when they opened the Chicago office and, and lead investments efforts in that part of the, the country. It's where I got to know Tim when he was running around trying to sell us deals and, and putting us in business, really. Um, and, and it's been amazing to watch, you know, sort of how that's the, the interest level has changed, the the information flow has changed, and the amount of, of just broader interest has changed. But, um, you know, Realterm has been doing it since long before I joined, the, or the early 90s, really. And the reason why was 
these assets, the, the founders had a, a portfolio of industrial assets across a, f- a few sectors within industrial and through some economic stress periods in the, the late 80s, early 90s, the best performing assets in their portfolio were a truck terminal and an on-airport cargo facility, which are, is our other business line that is iOS adjacent. And the strategy built out of that. So you can think about, I, I think we'd all love to go back and have a few more decades of totally unbrokered, totally un, un, uh, un sort of popularized space. But it, the firm has been around a long time and sort of built an investment thesis around it that I found extremely impressive and happy to help try to try to grow it a bit. Yeah, and kind of elaborate on what Derek said. You know, I I started as a broker, and actually one of my first clients was Real Term. But how I got into this space, actually, a friend from high school um, asked me to list his truck terminal on the south side of Chicago that was literally falling down. And my partners at the time said, "Don't take the listing. It's you know you're going to waste your time. It's not going to go anywhere. The doors are caving in. The roof is collapsing." And you know, it was a very small deal, million and a half dollars. My partner's like, you know, you'll probably get eight or nine hundred grand. And you know, I was hoping to get anything just to get a listing. And, you know, we ended up getting five offers and it traded just below 2 million. So like, I'm like, why did this happen? And it was, it was the zone F1 motor freight. And I'm like, okay, well, what's going on here? And why, why was this so valuable? So honestly, from that day forward, I just went and scoured the Chicago market for anything with heavy zone properties. I got some friends of mine, investors to buy a, a site in Bedford Park for 900 grand. We flipped it six months later for like four and a half million to Penske and, quickly just realized, okay, there's something here. And actually, that's when I came across Real Term in a magazine. I got a freight magazine and it was like, we buy truck terminals, as simple as it is. And that's how they used to market and probably had a good five-year run with Real Term is by far my biggest client. And as much as I love them, I I just saw the opportunity to be like, why am I not buying this? So, you know, I kind of went out at that time and you know, was always trying to be above board with, you know, my clients such as Real Term and the trucking users. But I realized in the in the outdoor storage world, if you don't control the properties, you can't, you don't, you don't win. You know, these users have such a hard time finding this space. So my whole thesis was to, you know, raise money around going to acquire as much of this real estate as you can, as you know, the supply, you know, we'll get into this later, but you know, the supply of this stuff is going down and the demand's going up. It's it's the only segment of real estate you could probably say that's a true statement in. So the scarcity of this asset class. You know, and, and if you go look at the vacancies through 2008 to 2010, it was the lowest vacancy of any asset class. And it, it proves to just be harder and harder to come by this stuff. So really, that's how I raised my money and, it's, you know, scaled to where we are today. It was are bad news when we lost it, Tim, but thankfully we had Mark still still uh, churning out deals. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> are they not building more of these? Is it is it all, are they not yeah. zoning it or? It, it look, you know, we can. I'll let somebody else take it in a second too. The zoning is probably the biggest challenge, but I mean, look, when you see a land site come up that's ten acres by, you know, towns don't want it. Builders can typically pay more that are going to build one hundred and fifty thousand square foot industrial building than a twenty with eight acres of parking or a truck terminal. So, to rebuild this stuff is very challenging. I mean, look, we're doing a deal right now in Rockwall, Texas. Um, we have the largest roofing supply company in the country willing to sign a 10-year lease and spend a million five to improve the yard. The city just said, kill the deal, we will never support it. So getting this stuff zoned, approved, entitled, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, we have school bus companies that they don't want in, even though everyone needs to take a school bus to school. So zoning is probably the biggest barrier to entry, but anybody else can hop in. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely right. It's it's really challenging to, to find land, entitled land. Um, get the appropriate approvals and and do so within a, a timeline where it makes sense for for a user who's you know trying to 
trying to plan their capex, trying to plan their lease obligations, and and you know make strategic decisions about their network. So, and I think sort of beyond that, Tim, we we say you know you know in a lot of these markets, whether it's infill Chicago, northern New Jersey where Mark sits, or Southern California, replacement of these properties, replacement cost, even when you're evaluating investment, is largely theoretical, right? Because the ability to aggregate land and title it and improve it, uh, it you know, there's environmental considerations as well. Um, when you get into those infill areas, to do all that is you, you'd be better off spending your time trying to buy trying to buy existing in a in a static supply environment, which I think where we all spend the majority of our time. But that's not to say that we won't build it. I think you know, real term, uh, somewhat unique in in our ability to sort of either capitalize developers that are that are looking at it, where we can we can come in and, and play um, in a in a real supply constrained market or do it ourselves. We've built millions of square feet on airports, which is a, a really complicated process for that cargo environment. So it can be done. And I think as the demands of the you know the sort of e-commerce and, and freight moving ecosystem continue to evolve, you'll see a bit more of it. But it's still going to be really a challenge, and it's going to be reserved, I think, for the users and, and the specialists like like we have here. Yeah, we recently we recently built something down in Joliet. The only reason that you know it, this was for Navistar and Sunbelt Rentals, so two big users, very well received by the market. Um, the only reason the city supported it was because it was a clean construction debris pit because they saw that there was no greater value for the site. It was too expensive to build a big box. That was the only reason we were able to get the support from the municipality to build it on that site. So, yeah, going back to the zoning and stuff like that, it, it's just it's very challenging, and the cost for it is just you know it, a lot of the times the tenants can't pay what you need to achieve. So, Mark, are, they, are you seeing are you seeing more folks chase you know development dollars for iOS or or lower coverage? Um, I gotta be honest, zero development in the iOS space from what we're seeing. Um, I think it, to you guys' point, it's a, it's a headache. Um, but something that didn't get mentioned is is there's also competing and alternative uses on these sites. You know, um, if it's zone, you know, let's say Northern New Jersey M1, M2, which is heavy manufacturing uh, or heavy industrial zoning, um, usually the town wants an alternative use to improve the property um, from a even a redevelopment. Um, and I'll speak to more of a uh, a local municipality um, improving even the lot with paving, fencing, or lighting increases your rateables. So it's a pretty non-signaling asset type, right? Like industrial in general is non-signaling, and then you're kind of like the lowest of the low <laughs> on non-signalization non of, of assets. Um, so the truck drivers don't need a paved lot, right? Yeah, they would like uh, security, right? The the equipment rental guy wants security, but he doesn't need it lit up during the during the night. So um, that those improvements are are limited, um, and it's kind of plug and play from a lot of uh, sites we see around here. So. Why don't we'd love to hear? I think a lot of people have signed on just to hear about some of the hot markets that you're you're seeing activity in, or or the secrets of the up and coming hot markets. Want to go, Alex? Wherever, Mark, wherever Mark's working. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, well, real term is uh, you guys will go like international now, right? So you could even really 
talk, talk broadly there, Derek. But no, uh, we we aren't we don't have an international focus yet. But nationally, um, you know, there's some pretty common themes in the last year to eighteen months. Uh, I can say broadly speaking, a lot of the the port markets. So you know, LA, Savannah, um, Charleston, some of the stuff in Newark which was some of the, the fraud, some of the frothiest markets sort of uh, on the way up, let's call it like 2021, early 2022. Those have definitely re repriced from a, a lease, lease rate perspective. Um, probably net net still way up than you know, pre-COVID. Um, so definitely some softness there, uh, maybe some are bottoming though. And so that could present some good buying opportunities. Um, and then some other, you know, markets in the Sun Belt that, you know, frankly, have just continued to run. Uh, we've seen rent growth and uh, I'm not going to name the market, but, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a market in the state of Florida where we see rent growth continuing to, you know, be in the double digits, you know, year over year. So, um, you know, I can tell you, and then also some other markets that weren't really so frolly to begin with in the Midwest have really been also steady performers. So it's sort of market to market, but there's definitely markets where we're seeing, you know, strong, strong rent growth still. Yeah. And, you know, from a transport side of things, we're, we kind of, we're, we're smaller than the Zenith and the realtor. We're in nine states now growing. Our whole thesis was grow for the Midwest out. But in my reality, in terms of what's a hot market, it just really depends on what your capital is. I mean, everyone's capital depends on where you can buy, where they want to be. And that, that really depends on where you want to be. So, you know, Honestly, if there's population growth, there's iOS growth, there's iOS opportunity. I mean, you could be buying in Des Moines, Iowa versus Chicago versus LA. And the thesis honestly reigns true in all these markets that we see is, you know, it's the scarcity of these assets is there. There's very little of it. Um, to get it redeveloped or rezoned is very challenging. So it just really depends on your money. Some of the most successful deals I've done have been in secondary markets like Grand Rapids, Michigan or stuff like that have been the highest yielding deals I've done. Um, you know, doing, but then, you know, there's certain capital that doesn't want to be in those markets. So it really just depends, in my opinion, on where your capital wants you to be. But there's iOS opportunities wherever there's population growth. And I, I think something else that, that, that probably bears mention, like it, it, within given markets, it's, it's important that you're picking assets that are properly sized, have the right level of improvements um to meet the demand you know what what's attractive to a port related user in savannah is different than a port related user in southern california which is different than an equipment uh, rental group in in kansas city so you know it's it's about knowing your target audience and knowing the the ecosystem for the asset class you're buying in a given market you know we call that you know looking for opportunities for for mid bandwidth properties right where the big guys can conceivably some of them are going to be in smaller sites could maybe step up but it's still appropriately sized for another group to add a second location. And, you know, you only get that through, I think, experiential investing. You know, Alex and Tim are, are nodding their heads, right? You see it develop within your portfolio. But as when you're jumping in, it's very difficult to say, uh, you know, Newark, New Jersey is a hot market. I'm going to buy there without sort of the, the experience saying, I need it to be this size range. I need to be talking to these advisors in the market. I need to be thinking about these user groups and how their business is doing right now. And all those things kind of get lost in just saying, hey, rent growth is really strong in XYZ market. So it's it's multifaceted in that respect. You got to be in the right geography where the trends are going, but you also got to be in the right asset that's that's right for the users you're targeting. 
And to elaborate a little on that too, what Derek just said, like when you're looking in a market, let's just take Miami, for example, you want to see where the users are concentrated. Because if you go buy in an area where they're not located to get a, a an old Dominion or an XPO to go relocate to the other side of town where that's not on a major thoroughfare or an equipment rental company that wants to be somewhere for a certain reason, you got to really focus on where in these markets. It's not just the address or name Miami. You got to make sure that there is a plethora of users in those subsections of those markets because again, that's you know these people don't want to move far. They don't want to lose labor. They need to get to the highway quickly. So all of that stuff comes into play when you're looking at these markets. I, I think to summarize, guys, and you probably nod your head in agreement. It's just, it, you guys are following the flow of freight, right? Um, whether that's interstates, whether that's railroads, ports, inland waterways. Ideally, you have two three, four of those in one location that makes it the, um, a top tier location. It's pretty funny. I always say this, you know, tier one industrial markets are tier one iOS markets, but tier one iOS markets aren't necessarily tier one industrial markets. Um, so it's pretty interesting as how that plays. One little tidbit I'll, I'll just share with the group. Um, you're looking at other type of indicators in the market today, too. So we're tracking building permits. So you can pull this publicly, whether it's by the state or by the county, you pull who's what county, what state is building the most amount of houses, right? So if you're building a ton of houses, you're going to have building supply yards, right? You're going to have equipment rental yards. Um, and to get even more micro with it, right? Netflix is building 5 million square feet of movie studio space in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, right? You can imagine 5 million square feet of, of movie studio space, their number one supplier is going to be equipment rental company. So I don't know too many in and around Monmouth County, but you know, to, to these guys' points, they're not obviously sharing their micro thesis, but rather than macro thesis, I think you can get really in the weeds as you chase certain uh, tenants and certain strategies. Do you have anything good for sale in that area? Yeah, but we're not going to share it right here. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood, you can go right to me, Mark. That's cool. <laughs> or Ben. Is there, is there, like, let's talk about financing a little bit. Has it changed over since you got into it? Like, who's doing financing now? What are the terms? And uh, has it made it harder that you get deals done? I guess I can jump in just given we see it on kind of both sides. So, you know, Chris, as you're alluding to, historically, this is this is a very difficult market or asset class to, to to find traditional financing. When a bank or a life company looks at these assets or looked at them historically, they see an underimproved piece of land, a rental stream that they don't understand necessarily, tenant credit profile that you know generally could be maybe large companies, but private in nature, a little bit less down the fairway in terms of the typical evaluation points. So because of that, you know, credit was either not available or LTVs were very low spreads were higher than traditional industrial or, or commercial real estate asset classes. And, and that's made for you know a, a situation where I think all of us have probably been forced to, to look at deals that we'd love to, to lever up on, but you know we, we have to look at unlevered performance and really focus on the real estate fundamentals. Um, that started to change a bit, you know, certainly as, as more equities come to the space and some more sophisticated sponsors have brought um, relationship lenders and the like. But really, I think still the most active um, for you know, one-off acquisition type financing secured deals are regional banks, maybe smaller life insurance companies that that are under pressure to deploy capital and, and have the bandwidth on their team to understand the asset. 
but it's still spotty. Um, I think we, we, we can all talk about deals we've done, recaps or investments where the interest just hasn't been what we wanted. And it's interesting for, for that reason, we, we have capital at Realtor earmarked towards lending in the space because we view ourselves as a sophisticated transaction counterparty with, with capital that can maybe be a little bit more aggressive in terms of loan to value or be a little bit quicker to close over some diligence issues that a traditional lender might not understand. And, you know, we'll, we'll price that capital appropriately, but, you know, our goal would be to work as, you know, a senior lender, good faith to with, with Tim and with Alex and all these groups that are assembling to just be a part of this evolving transaction ecosystem and, you know, lend on the properties where we believe in the business plan, we believe in the rents and, you know, we get paid off at the end because they've boosted cash flow so much those traditional lenders can come in. But I, I think while it's changing, I guess to, to summarize in my perspective, while it's changing and there's more financing dollars coming into the space, it's still because it's still spotty and you know we view it as still an opportunity for a specialist, both on the equity and the lending side, to to place capital and and be a part of the the transaction landscape. So that's what I see. I don't know what you think, Tim, Alex, Mark. Yeah, I mean, honestly, similar same thing. We've traditionally always used local regional banks for everything we've done to date. I mean, to echo what Derek said and the difficulties. I mean, I can tell you. We have fully improved trailer yards we're buying and the lenders are trying to classify it as raw land. And, and so, you know, you're trying to explain to them that it's an income producing piece of property, but they're like, well, we don't have a classification for that. So we can't do the deal. So that happens. You know, you try, uh, banks are becoming way more sophisticated. Um, our group has been out with the recap for the past little bit. We've selected our partner and we were kind of shocked to see two years ago, if we went out and did this, I think you'd maybe get two life, you know, life insurance company quotes this time, we just got six. And this was, you know, in the last 30 days. So I think it's really, and they're big groups, not too many small ones. So I, I think it's, it was really reassuring to see how many of the big life codes are recognizing the space and willing to go after it. So I'd see from the evolution of where it started to where it is today, seeing a lot of growth, but it's definitely still has a long way to go. Alex? Yeah. You know, we, um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate that we're one of the groups that, you know, is able to buy properties all, all cash. Um, but yeah, we, I, I'll echo some of the, the same sentiments. Um, you know, I think we've had our best execution today. It's sort of uh, pooling assets regionally. So we have a, you know, a Florida pool and we, we have like a Texas pool. Uh, just because we found the execution to be better with the small and regional banks, but um, have seen a lot more life codes sort of, you know, flow into the space. I think also just anecdotally, you know, conversations with uh, lenders, and I, I can think of a couple that were very painful a couple of years ago, have, have, you know, gotten just the level of sophistication in the conversations it, is it much better, I think, than it than it was in the past. And, uh, you know, that education uh, has been, you know, pretty good and has been, you know, linear through the last couple of years. And we, we think that will be to everyone's benefit that's on this panel, uh, you know, in the next handful of years. Little, little tidbit, just to piggyback off what Alex said, like, from a lending standpoint, it's probably easier to classify this stuff as light industrial, low coverage, light industrial versus throwing in an acronym or two and, mm. and confusing the, the, that market. Um, obviously you guys are aware of this, the, the debt becomes a lot more accretive to the sponsor once you're north of a 10 debt yield. So, uh, in our opinion, we're not really seeing, um, a, a high urgency to deploy debt from lenders on iOS facilities that are in transition, um, just cause in current time, there's a lot of risk at the table for that. So, 
um, the recommendation to Alex's point, if you can take it down all cash and, and create the value add enhancement yourself, um, there's a lot more value when your debt yield gets north of a 10. We'll take those lower debt yields, Mark, you show us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, I think what Realterm is doing to bridge the space right now on a on a you know credit side on a debt side is tremendous, and um, I highly encourage guys. Is look, you don't even have to show them too much, right? It's like, hey, they already know the space. Flip them an OM, right. and they understand what the market is, what the use is, and you're probably off to the races. Yeah, they're also smart too because they're looking at all of our recaps and just taking every comp and every piece of data and saving it. So <laughs> we already had those. It's okay. <laughs> Except for Grand Rapids. That's I I've already forgotten all that. Don't <laughs> leave me that one. Thanks, Derek. That's right. And South Bend. Yeah. That's that's a good uh uh transition into like speaking of the data, like how, how are you pricing assets when there's not a lot of I mean it's, it's obviously it's gotten easier to do so, I guess, over the last couple of years, but like when you first started pricing them and to now, like what are you yeah. guys doing? I'd be curious. Uh probably the real term would be a you know, maybe just another couple groups that I, I'd imagine had sort of national uh data, you know, that we it started, you know, our database started from nothing as well, but now at this point it it's thousands of, of data points. Um where it, we were able to comp out most any any market at this point. Um, and then because we have so much data, we are now actually able to you know, create actually predictive models um, where we can uh, pr price where we think rents should be given. You know, I think we're at like a 15 or 16 factor model, taking everything into account from you know, site size, improvement finishes, size of the building, demographic data, you know, industrial, you know, warehouse leasing rates. Um, and we think that, you know, they'll just be continue to, to, it's just part of the process of institutionalizing the asset class, um, which is really the opportunity is the data and that lack of, of uh, you know, visibility and uh, candidly, we kind of don't mind if stay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge of the space. For a little while longer, surely it will. There will be. Longer. I think uh, Alex's uh, your Wi-Fi got a little spotty there for a second, but we got we got the gist. So I go ahead, Tim. Yeah, so I honestly think that's probably the biggest challenge in this space. I mean, we're when we look at acquiring stuff, you know, when we look at the data we have in our system, when we look at what's out there, I mean. That is really, it's the challenge. We face it every single day where, you know, you have to find the right data. And it's it's tough when you have a capital partner that's like, well, send me 10 comps. When you have office and industrial, you can point to 50 data pieces. With, you know, iOS, you may have one or two good pieces of data that support it. I mean, we're looking at a portfolio right now that we're trying to say is 200% below market. And it's there, it's a great story, but it's like, how do you, how do you prove it out? And, you know, when I say, well, we've done two comps in the area that support that, it, it, it's a tough sell to somebody when you go ask it for a ton of money. So that is yeah. the when we sold our first portfolio in December 21, I didn't want to go to market because I didn't want the comps out. So once we had a good offer, we just took it. And so we didn't have to have the thing blasted. But honestly, to institutionalize the space, people like everyone on this call have to give the data out there because we have to find a way to get, you know, the big, the Blackstones, the Prologis you know, you know, the real terms already have it. But 
groups comfortable with this space enough to transact at the billion dollar type level, which I know everyone here is trying to accumulate portfolios to grow. So it, it's a double-edged sword. So in all reality, we're still figuring it out as a group. I mean, we we look at everything on a per acre basis, different than most, whether it's got a 10,000 square foot building or a 50,000 square foot building that will underwrite it on a per spot, on a per building square foot. We try to look at it three or four different ways whenever we look at a transaction, just to make sure we're not missing something. But you know, you'll call five brokerage shops and get five sets of comps and they'll all send the same comp and it never matches up the same way. So part of it is you just have to have the experience. We'll take what we know in Chicago and transition it to St. Louis or what we know in St. Louis and transition it to Memphis. We'll try to do stuff like that when you're kind of focused in the Midwest segment. But when we go to Denver or Phoenix and stuff, you're just trying to find the right data and make sure that, you know, you're making the best educated guess you can. And I've been hearing a lot in the space about um, robotics and innovation. I'm wondering if anybody on this call has, you know, with the institutionalization of the asset class, has experienced anything interesting there. You're seeing it from some of the users as they as they think about, you know, how to optimize, particularly the movement of freight. Right. That's that's an area that's seen a ton of of investment, I think. A lot of it is, you know, under the roof at, at these lower coverage warehouse, or maybe it's it's software that helps them price their their you know loads and and move trucks more efficiently. So not stuff we're seeing directly. You know, some of the the technological things we're you know I think dabbling in, and I think others would agree. It's some of the ESG related stuff. We're doing solar uh, solar panels on roofs that can support it, uh, electric charging in in yards where states are incentivizing that or have regulations that are going to make that a necessity. Um, but but really what's interesting is is how it's going to impact the operators. And and I think what we need to track as an industry to the comp point is how that changes the margins of their business. If you can, if they can use a, a parking lot more efficiently, pack more trailers, more containers in there and, and drive more revenue. I think, you know, the spread between that, that sort of call it retail income versus a wholesale triple net rental rate is is going to change. And there's there's a consistent relationship there. So how technology impacts the operation and the profitability or, or revenue generating ability of the occupiers is something we're watching and trying to understand to, to update sort of, as Alex said, our, the pricing models and understand and, and to what Tim was saying is you got to understand based on your experience or feel how these sites are going to be used because somebody has got to make money if they're going to pay you money at, the, at these locations and technology is a big factor in that. And also, I think you're starting to see, especially as the interest rate environment has has changed and sort of balance sheet financing has become more challenging. Users using real estate value, whether it's sale leasebacks, excess property sales, uh, secured debt solutions, reinvesting that those proceeds into technological initiatives. So um, I think we're just starting to see it, but clearly it's becoming a priority both on the environmental and operational side. Yeah, and honestly, one of the biggest things we check now on every, not technology related, but power related, I mean, we all talk about when the electric trucks are coming. Is it two years, five years, 10 years? I mean, before it's full-fledged, I mean, I think they have to solve the issue that trucks run 24 hours a day with different drivers and these things need to stop and charge. I still think there's a big inefficiency there, but they're coming. So any property we buy now, one of our new, you know, one of our big due diligence checklist items is, can we charge trucks here and how many? You know, we're doing a build a suit right now for a national school bus company in the city of Chicago, and they're putting electric truck or electric uh, chargers in for the buses. So school buses, I feel like are ahead of the trucking industry as it sits right now, but just because there's so much federal money available for them to do that. But power to me is above technology, at least in our space. 
Yeah, it, it's and to Tim's point, it's not just power. It's it's all infrastructure. So whether it's railways going in, um, whether it's having repairing rights or barge access, um, I think there's a a pivot in the iOS space right now to look at sites that have heavier infrastructure that separate themselves from just a yard. Exactly, Mark. The way we look at it, the heavier zoning, the better. The heavier infrastructure, the better. There's sort of larger economic indicators of why this space has become hot hotter. Is it because people are shipping more things, and, and to their is it because folks are is Amazon, you know is it more Amazon warehousing and, and like all these things? Is there anything big? Like what's the bigger play? I remember like when SFR came out uh, first, no one knew what that was, and it was because you know the people had a hard time getting mortgages, and and so all of a sudden they were like, well, let's let's start running out some running out houses. Um, is there anything like that? I think it's, it's the flow of freight, like Tim said. Go ahead, Tim. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, it's it's always been there. You know, the, the thing about iOS that's different from a lot of the other asset classes, it's just smaller. You know, a lot of the deals we work on are substantially smaller than if you're going to go do a, you know, $100 million office build in New York. You know, as those sectors have slowed from the, you know, the office, of course, has been crushed. So where is that money going? You know, if you're not investing in office, you got to find new places to invest it. So I think a lot of the the interest in it's just become lack of availability and people aren't building shopping malls or not building office buildings. Industrial is very saturated, as we all know. So it's like, where can people deploy capital? And I think the one knock on iOS, probably outside of the stuff, you know, honestly, that Realtor has done is just that these deal sizes are much smaller. I mean, when I got in the space, there were one to five million. Now we're probably five to 15 million, at least for us at Transport. Whoa, whoa, but, getting ahead of yourself there, Tim. Yeah. Five to 15 million. I mean, exactly. It's, it's getting huge. So, no, I mean, it, it's really like when you look at these individual deal sizes, they're they're just too small for a lot of the huge groups of capital. But right now, when things are slow and the, the yields are still here, people are coming in. Mark, would you agree with that? I mean, totally, totally. Uh, um, it's funny, you know, you don't you don't recognize the toy store that's that's in your downtown until your kid points it out to you. Right. Like. So the, to your point, iOS has always been here. There's never been an acronym for it, but the utilization of the space has always been the same. Um, and, and, you know, what has transpired, obviously, we kind of came out of a COVID environment where logistics and transportation became the utmost important to everyone involved in it. Um, and then you layer in the need for additional infrastructure in a kind of a, uh, a country where, you know, we are going through upgrades of all that um infrastructure needs um and then you know you know chris you mentioned sfr i think that plays into ios right the building of homes and the more construction going on you need a building supply yard right you need a machine equipment uh yard so um it's funny how how many industries tie back into the outdoor storage space I worked at an awning company, like outdoor awning company, and and mm -hmm. when I was Rutgers, and we had a ton of iOS. If I only knew, <laughs> I would have bought it all. Uh, well, we have a bunch of questions here. We have about fifteen minutes left. We have a bunch of questions. Uh, we'll just go through this a little bit. This is actually an interesting. One. How do you incentivize brokers to find tenants, le like leasing brokers, to find tenants relative to regular warehouse space, since the absolute level of fees to a leasing broker is much lower? Is that true, Mark? I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, it's interesting. It gets to what Tim was saying about the, you know, what's your, what's your denominator? Is it per acre? Is it per dock door? Is it per land square foot? 
you know, these are these are underimproved buildings, but you know, when you think about the the necessity within these users' networks and where rents have gone for a lot of these shippers, the overall check size for for a user and for a broker is is you know nothing to sneeze at, I think. So, you know, listen, listen it's it's about picking the right partners, the right brokerage providers in the market. Um that, that can offer value. And, and when they offer value, you have no problem compensating folks in a, in a market way and making sure that everyone's aligned. Um, you know, I think, I think Alex and Tim would agree too, that, you know, as you get built up in the space and you're, you're being able to bring prospects to your building yourself, you make, you make their jobs easier. Um, so you always have them, you always take care of them because it's, it's the thing to do. But if you can say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you on a, on a leasing, but here also are three or four prospects, you know, that's, that's enticing. Right. So, I think it's it's an evolving ecosystem, just like just like the capital side of the equation, the the services side of the equation, whether it's brokerage or investment sales, like Mark and his his team, or other folks in the construction contracting world. Everybody's wanting to be a part of it because there are more dollars flowing through it. So it's all pretty um, aligned, I guess, from my perspective. And I, I would echo that same sentiment. I mean, we we pride ourselves and we probably lease about 70% of our assets ourselves, but we hire a broker on 100%. And a lot of it is educating the brokers on how, who we call, why we call them. And they really appreciate the cohesiveness of it. We're not saying, hey, we're not trying to take the glory of it. We're just trying to fill our buildings. And we understand it's a smaller priority than a million square foot listing they have down the street. So we always go in and let them know like, hey, if you're not interested, we'll always take it off your hands. And Typically, most people in our sector know it's such an emerging sector that they want to be as involved in it as they can and appreciate working side by side. So we'll say, hey, here's who we're going to call. Who are you going to call? Let's report back in a week. And, you know, here's how we price it. Here's how we look at it. So it becomes fun. It's almost a bit of a game sometimes who can fill it first. So we've had a lot of success with kind of working together versus, you know, just saying, you know, you know, we'll do it or not. I do think that... Uh... Tim, you, you kind of touched on it uh, earlier that from an investment sales perspective, one of the things we did find initially was a lot of the experienced investment sales brokers did not want to necessarily focus on ILS properties just because the, the check size was, I think in some ways that's actually part of the, the reason for the emergence of ILS was just the lack of broker uh, you know, focus on the asset class. Um, but I will say the counter to that on some of these leases, I mean, we're looking at lease right now that's, uh, I mean, I think it's like a 20 or $30 million lease consideration, right? So the, the dollar amounts can get pretty real um, depending on the market and, and the size of the site. So um, still plenty of money to be made on the leasing side in iOS. Usually you wanna ask a question? Yeah, so we have a question from Michael Pitts over at BGO and Michael wants to know, how pricing has changed over the past three years, and what would you estimate pricing to be in the top industrial markets? Mark, you want to take this one? Yeah, I'll try. Uh, what has happened over the last three years? It's a roller coaster. We went up and came a little bit back down. So if you look at 2018 to 2023, the Kager has been 22% in northern New Jersey. And I, you know, Mike, I consider that a top industrial market in the country. So, um, and it's down from 2022 from a leasing side of things and from a pricing side of things. Um, so how would it price today? I, I think in any respective market in simplicity, you're gonna take a spread over your class B industrial 
and that's that spread is going to be variable based on is it a primary market a secondary market if it has leasing risk is it um does it have entitlement risk um so you add all those up and you kind of come up with a formula formula that just says hey you know we're 100 bips over you know uh class b right I, i'm just making it up and we can you know depending on where it's located you know we can get more accurate um but I, something that from a pricing standpoint that uh a majority of the market doesn't understand and i'm going to relay um something i just talked about from the financing side there is a cash flow premium to the space right because there's too many assets in transition so the equity and the debt need assets that have cash flow and i consider and jll considers three plus years of lease term as core in in the, in the ios space versus you get three plus years in in of you know call it three to four years of, of lease term in the industrial warehouse space it's completely a value-add opportunity so um there is a premium to those type of assets and um as we work with groups to kind of do portfolio construction, it's like, hey, let's layer on some. And even if it's paying up for some cash flowing assets, now you get better lending terms and you get better recapitalization terms uh, from equity as well. So I kind of went off tangent, but hopefully that answers it. Yeah. And just elaborate on that too. I mean, look, I mean, I, I would say there's definitely, I would kind of go probably mark more towards class A, hundred basis points off. I mean, <laughs> We sold our portfolio in December 21. We were at a five and a half. Um, you know, we've sold several assets sub five, you know, with the right credit and terms. So, you know, when we look at it, I mean, we look at it probably 50 to 100 points off class A, just depending on where it is and depending on what it is in the iOS. It's a, if it's an unpaved trailer yard, yeah, you're trending more towards the B, but for core iOS assets and good locations, I would say it's really competitive to class A industrial, at least what I've seen in my experience. Yeah, Chris, no, we rewind that you, like two minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'll rewind. We'll cut that out. Don't worry. Right. Yeah. I won't bring up the one I sold to Derek. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, uh, this is from Eunice Jaffrey with over at Peak Rock Open Austin. How do you assess environmental risk for acquisitions with tenants who may have been using the site to store oil or hazardous materials? I, I, every market's different. Every market has standards for for what constitutes reportable limits what constitutes um you know appropriate remedial action plan so you know we we have you know pretty significant in-house experience and specialty now in in the markets where we invest but also you need to retain appropriate appropriate counsel appropriate consultants and you need to be asking you know the next question in, in diligence that's where i think a lot of folks we've seen um that we've tried to acquire from that, that aren't as, as sophisticated as this group um, have stubbed their toe because they they haven't, you know, completed anything. They've gotten one opinion and they've said, ah, somebody else will kind of brush over it because the market's tight and everybody wants iOS, but that, that's simply not the case. And to, to the questioner's point that the uses can be, can be risky. Generally, they're, they're consistent risk. It's fuel oil, it's, it's uh, parts maintenance, things that you can Kind of wash rinse repeat from a, a diligence standpoint but you have to be looking at it and it's it's no one size fits all from a market perspective um you know if you just think about the different um you know political and and legal climates in a place like california versus uh dallas texas you know the the emission standards the pollution standards the types of uses that went on at the site prior to the tenant sometimes it's very hard to untangle 
was it your user just prior or was it something 30 years ago when it was an oil field that they created an issue and you need to untangle that and understand your risk and try to quantify it before you before you close on an asset yeah go ahead mark hey tim i was just going to mention like i i highly encourage everyone to retain the best environmental consultants and the best zoning consultants because those are the two things that there's ticking time bombs on your site so um you know, on top of of hiring the best, obviously capital markets brokers too, um, but those, <laughs> those third parties are extremely important in the iOS space. No, echo that. That's the biggest mistake you'll make if you try to buy into this space or do anything. It, not only is it in, in terms of your exit, but you have to get your tenants comfortable. As you deal with some of the larger groups, they want to see your environmental. They have to set a baseline. Um, those are definitely the number one and number two things that can trip you up trying to get into this space. So I have a question from Tim, from Chris Bowers. And he said, as Tim mentioned, there are still some large inefficiencies in the electrification of trucking fleets. Currently, how much power are users usually in need of? And do you have any idea of how much power may be needed if VV fleets do materialize? I don't honestly have the specifics on me. I would that that's our construction department. We have only had one user really required to date, but we're just trying to understand and make sure the infrastructure is there. So unfortunately, I don't personally have a specific number if someone else does, but um, we haven't had to cross that burden on more than one occasion yet. Leave it up to Chris Powers to ask the hardest question of the bunch. If everyone <laughs> has a chance, you should turn into his podcast. He has some great guests. Actually, it's Chris Bowers. Oh, Bower. Got it. He's got a great podcast. Podcast is phenomenal. <laughs> He's at GLP. So you got to take it serious. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, Paul Bergeron said uh, school buses cost three times more than diesel buses. Will that price come down? One school district canceled their order because they simply cannot afford them. I grew up with school buses in northern New Jersey with, with you, Mark. Uh, but where I live now in Northern California, we don't have school buses. So I don't know. I, I, I know this much. We we deal with a couple of bus dealerships and they're saying the school buses that are electric are having a lot more problems than they anticipated right now. So they think it's a five to 10 year process to get away from diesel versus electric, but if not even longer. So the reliability of the electric and just, again, the demand that these pieces of equipment from trucks to school buses take on a daily basis can the electric vehicles handle it? I, I think that's the unproven nature right now. But I know this one bus dealer I was dealing with specifically told me that they're having a lot of issues with the electric buses. You know, don't quote me on it. That's just what I was told. So it's it's early in the process. We'll see. Definitely. Um, so uh, another question is, how do you underwrite rents in a space where leasing information is so difficult to come by? And I know we touched on this a little bit, but it is, it is interesting. So would love to hear how any of you do that. It's very manual, like Alex said earlier, right? We've all spent countless hours and our teams have spent countless hours compiling data, digging through, you know, historical information where it's available. Very often it's not. So you're you're building that thesis from scratch in a lot of markets. And um, you know, it's at some point you have to put your foot in the ground and say, This is this is what I can achieve, you know. I, I think a lot of us were, were fortunate now that we've built a, a really good stable of, of user relationships. So the ability to sort of gut check some of that with with key occupiers is essential to to us and critical and something that can't be you know sort of um, sort of faked or or built quickly. And that's just 
that just comes to the difficulty of building scale in, in the space. Um, you know, you've heard Tim talk a lot about it, right? He he really knows his tenants, he really knows his occupiers, and can get that level of information. And I think that's something that a, a lot of the more successful groups in iOS at, at aggregating, you know, share as part of their sort of DNA or their their investment thesis. I would say uh, we've talked about ways groups can stub their toe. I'd say in the last two to three years, apart from zoning, probably one B, the other way groups have stubbed their toe the most is by getting rents wrong. Um, I think especially when things were getting hot, uh, brokers would sort of feed top of the market rents and newer entrants would, would believe those numbers and sort of chase them. I, as an anecdote for how hard it is to you know, get these rents right, when we recently went out and sort of asked a couple of brokers an opinion on, on a site and the range was anywhere from four to $6,000 an acre. Imagine like saying to a multifamily, like a you know, leasing broker, what are rents for one bed in this market? I mean, that's a, that's a massive spread, right? So um, yeah, it, you have to be very careful to underwrite these rents. Um, this is from Azan. We're almost done here, so thank you for sticking around for the whole thing. Uh, any inputs on asset management for iOS facilities? What are the challenges operationally and financially in managing iOS portfolios nationally? I think one of the most attractive things about iOS is, you know, when you retenant a space or when you take care of these spaces, there's so little that has to be done for a new tenant. I mean, a lot of the time it's fixing a fence, fixing a gate, filling a pothole, painting an office. I mean, I think that's the true beauty of the space. If you have a school bus operator that's leasing a yard from you and a trucking company comes next, you're really not doing anything different. Um, I mean, I would say make sure you have the right insurance. These are heavier uses. You know, we have had a building burned down and it went to insurance and, you know, it's, you know, it was a diesel fire that almost took up an entire, you know, block in South Chicago. So it's, you can't, don't undercut on insurance. We have somebody in our office who handles that, make sure you have everything, you know, it's, it's it's a heavier, it beats your property up. I'd, I'd say see your properties regularly too, because you may have a tenant that's having, you know, diesel dumped on the property. It's, it's again, diesel fuel is not a big environmental contaminant. You can contain it, it's fine, but just always visit your properties. Make sure that you know what's going on there. Make sure you know the, what the use is. But I think the beauty of the sector is it's unlike office where you have to rip 20,000 square feet out and build it completely different for a new tenant. You really, it's, there's very little to do in this space when you retenant it. Yeah, Tim's absolutely right. See your properties, know what your tenants are doing, know how their business is going, you know, beyond the the physical makeup of the properties, you need to understand, you know, sort of where the winds of those industries are going and where your demand is going to come from and be getting ahead of, of lease rollovers, you know, uh, folks outgrowing properties, folks that business is shifting to demand different things. So you can't you can't understate the importance of talking to your users, getting on site, seeing how it's being used and seeing how it's being operated and what areas of the properties are taking stress, what are maybe over improved and, and putting that in your playbook for next time. It's four o'clock, guys, Eastern time. Uh, there's a lot more questions. We're not going to get to answer them right now. What I would suggest, if you have a question on here we did not answer, please uh, just walk over to, to Alex's house. Um, you can knock on his door and I'm gonna send me, send me an email or a message on LinkedIn with the question. I'll get it answered for you from the panelists. Uh, we're also, this is re recorded. We're gonna put this out eventually as a podcast edited. So if you follow us on uh, the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast, please, uh, you can find the recording. And with that, I just wanna thank everyone for being on the panel today. I, mean, I could 
I'm, I'm, you know, Lisa and I are learning about this as on the fly. Like we, you know, we've had some searches in this space recently, which has been awesome. And it's led us to, to really, you know, do a lot of research and, 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 and all that stuff. And, and thank you all for being, for educating us on this space and uh, hope to keep in touch. So um, good luck with everything and congratulations on getting in early on this asset class. It's awesome.